Open your Bible with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Five years ago, I walked into a conference room at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, for an interview that would determine if I was fit to be admitted into the prestigious PhD program at Southern Seminary. I assure you, I was not fit to be admitted. Uh, After a day of writing exams, the next morning I was interrogated, I mean interviewed, uh, by a pretty intimidating committee. I wanted to study hymnology, that's the study of, of hymns in the life of Christian worship. And on my committee is one of the greatest hymnologists of our day. Her name is Dr. Esther Cruikshank. And um, I've forgotten most of the interview due to the billowing cloud of anxiety that filled my thoughts through the entirety of our time together. But I do remember Dr. Cruikshank's asking me, would you please tell the committee your, your favorite um, canticle in Scripture and explain why? I froze. I mean, it felt like a pause, but it was more freezing. Uh, I mean, I knew what a canticle was. A canticle is any song in Scripture outside the Psalms. But I'd forgotten all of them in that moment. Eventually, my, my thoughts found Paul's Christ hymn in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. And I said, the thing that I love about this canticle found in Scripture is that it contains the whole gospel in just one little song. Uh, It sings of the work of Christ's condescension from heaven's glory, how he took on flesh, how he endured the death of the cross, and how he was resurrected unto glory. It was a summary of the whole gospel into one little passage. That's what I said. And they let me in the program. After eight doctoral seminars, four colloquia, uh, some extra leveling assignments that were given just for good measure, and a proper dissertation later, I graduated one year ago, I think today, either today or tomorrow, last May. And uh, as we all know, most graduation ceremonies were, uh, were either canceled or postponed. Mine was rescheduled. Uh, And it was rescheduled for December and then again for uh, this week. And so it was important for me to walk across that stage. I just needed some closure, you know. And and I wanted Jamie to be there and the kids to be there so they could see what we all invested four or five years of our life into uh, as as a family. So this Friday, the Boswells are headed to Southern Seminary, and I'm going to get to walk across that stage to be conferred officially, properly, as Dr. Matthew Charles Boswell, again, again. So uh, that happened digitally, again, you know, last year, but now it gets to happen properly. And so um, nothing changes for us. If you call me Dr. Boswell, we're going to have some words. I even make my students on campus call me Dr. Boz, just to help diffuse any kind of formality that they may feel. Um, I've spent a great time thinking this week about my academic career and my life as a student. There's a lot of years to look back on. And um, I thank God for the way that it stretched me. Um, I loved every part of it. It humbled me, and I grew. 
I grew, namely, in love for our Savior, Jesus Christ. I grew in my love and devotion to his word, to our local church, for the purity and passion of the worship of God. And in looking back, I realized the doctoral program was less about teaching me to do academic research. It was about teaching me to approach every day of this life as a learner, as a disciple, as a worshiper of Jesus Christ. And so in this series entitled For the Mission, we have been learning together what it means to be a church who is committed to the glory of God and to making disciples in the power of God. We highlighted the, uh, the first week that the church exists to glorify God by enjoying Him forever together. Last week, we held up our mission to make disciples to the Great Commission, seeing where it's tethered to this once-for-all commission of the church throughout the age of Christ given to His people. And now that we've established both our ultimate goal as a church and our mission as the people of God, we now turn our attention to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel that created the church, that empowers the church, that sends the church. The source of the church's devotion and unity and mission is nothing other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the good news of the life, death, resurrection, and return of Christ that is the center of our faith, that it is the fabric of our community, and it is the message of our mission. So we must understand what the gospel is and why it matters if we hope to remain a church that enjoys Christ that enjoys the fellowship that we have with Christ and with one another as we seek to fulfill the Great Commission. I have two headings for our sermon this morning entitled, For the Gospel. One, the gospel is the glorious center of the Christian life. Two, the gospel is the glorious center of the church's life. Two very simple points. Let me invite you to stand once more as we read from the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 15, verses 1 through 4. This is God's word, His holy, perfect, inerrant, unchanging word given to us. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you're being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. first truth I'd like to draw your attention to is that the gospel is the glorious center of the Christian life. People love to quickly point out that the definition of the word gospel is what? Good news. You said that just a little unsure. The definition of the gospel is what? 
good news. Yeah, and, and they're not wrong. You're not wrong. It is an announcement of good news. But while that definition looks tidy on a dictionary page, it doesn't carry with it the emotional weight or height or joy or expression that it is meant to express. Even when you said good news, I don't know if I really believed it. William Tyndale gets at this when he wrote Evangelion, which is the Greek form of the word gospel. So Evangelion is a Greek word signifying good, merry, glad, and joyful tidings that makes a man's heart glad and makes him sing, dance, and leap for joy. Now, doesn't that add to it? That gets at what it's supposed to produce in us. And when we understand just how good the good news is, that's the kind of people that it makes us. When we grasp the height and depth and length and breadth of the love of God toward us, demonstrated in Christ, that's what it does. After all, it is good news of great joy. So just think back. When was the first time that the gospel made your heart sing, dance, and leap for joy? When was the first time? In these four verses, Paul is calling the Christians at Corinth to grow as disciples. I'm going to just distill it into just two things. There's a lot of things he's doing, but just a couple of them we're going to focus on this morning. To remember and stand in the gospel. First, as disciples, we're called to remember it. Chapter 15 begins with these words. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received. Now, Paul is reminding these people of things they already knew. How do we know that? Well, he says all the way back in chapter 1, verse 1, he writes, to the church of God in Corinth, people of God, welcomed into the family of God. And then he elaborates, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Sanctified means you've been made holy. You've been sprinkled clean. You've been washed of your sin. And then he calls them, he says they've been called to be saints together. So Paul's writing to a church full of people who have already received the announcement of the gospel and they've already believed in the truth of the gospel. They've put their trust in Christ as their Savior. It is common practice for Paul to spend a significant portion of his letters explaining the gospel to people who already knew it. For homework this week, you might just look through the Pauline epistles and see how often he comes back as explaining doctrine, always written to a church or a church leader. People who already believe, he spends incredible space, spills incredible ink to tell them the same things they know again and again. Why? Why tell people something they already know? So that the reality, the implications... The consistency of that good news settles down into the soul of a person and never loses its stickiness. 
so that our hearts will not get over it. We need to hear it again and again and again. And he wants these churches, these early churches, to know how to define and defend the gospel. That's part of what he's wanting to do. And then he's also wanting to press it down into their lives so that the entirety of their life is then oriented around the good news of the gospel. Both of those, to define it, defend it, and then so that it transforms everything it touches. So, what is it that we need to be reminded of that brings so much joy? Let's take a look. In this little corner of the New Testament that we just read, it contains a summary, like the song that I quoted in that interview. There's another place that Paul does it, Philippians 2, 6 through 11. But in this part, this little gospel shorthand this little summary of the whole teaching of the gospel in just a few phrases, and uh, he outlines the message in three points. Point number one, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Now, let's start with the scriptures. We've just concluded a study of the gospel of Matthew where over almost 70 times he quotes the Old Testament showing how Christ is the fulfillment of those. If you bring it back to just illusions, it's 300 times Matthew tells us that what Jesus is doing, the good news of his gospel, is pointing back and showing how Jesus is fulfilling the scriptures, all so that we might understand that Christ died for our sins. You might want to circle those words in your Bible, because that's the greatest news that has ever reached a human ear. Christ died for our sins. You see, every person must answer two questions in this life. What will I do with my sin? And what will I do with the Savior? Maybe some of you walked in here this morning. You still don't have answers to that question. Paul explains not only that Christ died, but he draws out the motivating force of Jesus in his death, to bring forgiveness to us as his people. He says it like this in another letter. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He says in that same letter, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all have this condition of sin that we're born into, hating the light, running from the light. But at the right time, God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you too will be saved. Who's that promise for? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. Romans 10, 13. Maybe that's you this morning. Let me just let this sink in on us just for a moment before we move in. Christian, your sins are fully forgiven. You didn't do one thing to add to that forgiveness. The only thing you brought to this thing was the sin that you committed. Christ has done it all from first to last. Saved you completely. You didn't make up for your sin, earning God's approval by having X number of quiet times this week, 
Or if you thought maybe by coming to church this morning that God might smile upon you. Nope. His smile's already there. That's why we're here. Because in Christ, our sins are forgiven in full. Mm. That is good news. There's nothing we can do to clean ourselves up. The blood of Christ makes us completely clean. Christ died for our sins. That's the tip of the arrow of Paul's gospel. The second point is that Christ was buried. He includes this so that there's no doubt in the death of Jesus. He doesn't want you to think that it might have just been a momentary condition, that Jesus was mostly dead, like Billy Crystal says when he's Miracle Max, claiming that Prince Wesley is just mostly dead. No, he's deader than a doornail, to quote Charles Dickens. Completely, truly dead. Christ died a real death, was buried in a tomb so that he would carry your sins all the way there. Not only that, but he found us in the grave of our sin and dragged us to life in him. And if that was the end of the story, we'd have no business singing hymns like we sang this morning. Unto the grave, what will we sing? Christ, he lives. Christ, he lives. And what reward will heaven bring? Everlasting life with him. But it's not the end of the story. The third point that Paul presents to us in, in defining and defending the gospel is that Christ rose on the third day in accordance with the scripture. Jesus rose to prove that he was God. He was God, and he alone had the final victory over death and sin and Satan. And this is one summary, Paul's shorthand version of the gospel, and it's good news of great joy. It is good news. If we want to grow as disciples of Jesus, then we've got to remember and rehearse that story again and again and again, because that changes everything. It changes everything. So next, we must stand in the gospel. Um, we don't just receive Christ and then move on to more important things. No, we stand in Christ and his goodness. A lot of people think the gospel, they treat it like it's just a carry-on bag that you, you carry through this life. But it's not a carry-on bag. It's the plane that you're flying in all the way safely home. It's the thing that carries us. We don't grow past it. We don't graduate from it. Paul says it's the thing of first importance. It was the glorious center of his life. For Paul, the gospel was the sun that everything revolved around. And as people saved by the same grace of Jesus, we must also make the gospel our first importance. How? How do we do that? I love how Ray Ortland explains it. The message of the gospel has specific content. It can and must be defined. And from the Bible alone, every generation must pick up their Bibles and rediscover the gospel afresh for themselves and rearticulate the ancient message in their own words for their own time. What does that mean? Well, guys, it's our turn. 
it's our turn. It's our turn. We, it's our moment to pick up the Bible and search it afresh and anew. To see God in his word, to meet with God in his word, to discover the gospel afresh from his word and allow it to reorient our entire lives around the person and work of Jesus. This is our moment. We don't get these years to do over again. We want to spend them for the glory of God, knowing him and making him known. Let's remember lest we forget and Christ be moved from the center place in our life. Let's stand firm in the good news of Jesus. Let's immerse ourselves in it so we know it forward and backward and inside and out until it transforms us forward and backward and inside and out. We never graduate from the gospel. The gospel is the glorious center of the Christian life. The second truth I want to pull from this text is that the gospel is the glorious center of the church's life. The church's life. Not just true for us as individuals, but for us as his covenant people. Paul's writing this letter to the Corinthian church, whom he loves. He's proclaiming the good news of Jesus. Why? He's committed to shepherding them to grow together in Christ, and to stand united in Christ. But don't think for a moment that Paul's writing to some utopian Christian community from long ago. No, the church in Corinth is riddled with problems. As a matter of fact, Paul's primary purpose in writing to them was to address these issues which the Corinthians took so lightly, sweeping them under the rug. But these things that Paul saw as a grave problem. What were they doing? Well, they were creating divisions among themselves. Think about how silly this is. Uh, They were separating into parties depending on who their favorite Bible teacher was. They uh, They were committing grotesque sin and just acting like the Bible and the truth of the gospel didn't speak to it. They were constantly quarreling with church members. Even in the body of Christ. I know you find this just so hard to believe. There was even strife when they would gather together to worship. And because Christ wasn't the center of their fellowship, even their doctrine of Christ was diluted. Almost powerless, not believing in the resurrection of Jesus and the future hope that awaits us as believers in the resurrection to come. One scholar described them saying the church was in the world as it had to be, but the world was in the church as it ought not to be. If there was ever a church that needed to be recommissioned and called again to the centrality of the gospel and the life of their life together, it was the church at Corinth. Okay, so what do we do with that? Well, praise the Lord, we don't feel those strains inside of our church. I know those things are represented in the body of Christ at large right now, but by God's grace, he has saved us from enduring much of that. And so now is the time for us to talk about it. 
Now's the time to talk about how to keep our hearts united in Christ. Don Carson writes, one of the most urgently needed things today is a careful treatment of how the gospel, biblically and richly understood, ought to shape everything we do in the local church. That's what we need, to remember, saints, the importance of being a gospel-first people. The gospel is strong enough for us to stand in. It is strong enough. We can disagree on a thousand things, but we must agree in the gospel. Uh, Every day, there are things competing with that being the center of why we exist as a church. Our culture feels this. Entire denominations feel this. They're moving over here saying, no, social justice is the thing the church exists for. Or this or that are the things the church exists for. These are the driving aim of the church. And we stand well in the tradition of the scripture and the church through the ages saying, no, it is the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ that is the reason we exist. And from that center, we will not move. Yet, every day, there is cloudiness between our eyes and that target. And we need the power of the gospel to give us vision for that. What I'd like to do is just take our, our same pen and go over the same brushstrokes we've already made, remembering the gospel and standing in it together. But I want to make ample application to us as a local church. So Trails Church, remember the gospel. What does it look like when that happens? When the good news of Jesus is the center of a church? Well, it's the most joyful Loving, humble, forgiving, courageous force in all of creation. When the gospel is the loudest message in the church, we experience a Christ-centered, deep, abiding joy in times of real happiness and real suffering. Regardless of how high the joys are, the joy in Christ is even higher. And regardless of how real and painful the valley of suffering is, The joy of Christ is even deeper than those things. And when that's right, it fuels the whole church. So what what does that look like? How does that affect our life together? Let's look at some ways how. Well, here's one. Because we realize how many our sins are, and because of how much we have been forgiven then we're able to forgive one another when we sin against each other. Notice I said when, not if we sin against each other. We're not expecting perfection from one another. When Jesus stands at the center of a faith community, of a local church, then we are able to take our eyes off of each other to try to save one another. There is one Savior among us, and He is Christ the Lord. And so that frees us from expecting perfection of one another. No one should be better at asking forgiveness and extending forgiveness than us. That's kind of our thing, isn't it? Well, how about this? Because Christ humbled Himself, 
we are able to humble ourselves before one another. We don't have to posture with one another with some uh, fake plastic spirituality. That's the good news of the gospel. The whole world does that. You don't have to. Why? Because our righteousness, our holiness has nothing to do with us. It's all in Christ. So we don't have to pretend anymore like we're moral people who get it all right. We're immoral people who got it all wrong. That's why we needed a Savior. And that kind of humility is our only way forward. There's no room for pride. We recognize the only reason any of us are in Christ to begin with is by His grace. So we want a thick doctrine of grace. Why? So that we have a thick culture of grace. How about this? Because Christ rose from the grave, securing our resurrection, we can treat one another with the glory and dignity of who we are now, seated with Christ, even in this very moment. Now, there's a sense in which we treat every human being with the dignity and honor and glory they deserve because they are created in the image of God. Every human being. And then by God's grace, he makes some of those human beings alive in Christ and places them in his family. And so there's even extra honor and love and dignity. How how does that love look like? Well, John says it's that love that will be the apologetic to the world. That's how they will know we're in Christ is because of our deep, abiding, committed, covenantal love to one another. How do we know that? Because that's been given to us in Jesus. How about this? Because Christ has promised himself to us in the gospel. And that's what he's done. He has promised himself to you. And because he's promised to us his presence in the Great Commission, we're now free to be the most liberated, courageous, God-glorifying people on the face of the world. What can go wrong If we're held in the grip of a sovereign God who holds not only our lives but the entire world in his hand. Okay, so that's just a few. We're just getting started there. I had 83 more examples to give you, but we're going to power through for now. We've got about 40 years to work through the rest of it together. Lord willing. Remember the gospel. It's as we remember what Christ has done for us, we're able to have this gospel culture that we're describing. Second, if we're going to experience this kind of supernatural gospel community, we must stand together in the gospel. Boz, you're not saying anything new here. I told you I wasn't going to. It's just the same two things. Remember and stand. We stand in the gospel, making it the first importance of our life together. We've intentionally said That the thing that unites us as a local family is nothing short of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we don't need any other foundation. Uh, We don't share the same political ideas. We don't have the same outside interests. We don't all come from the same social backgrounds or ethnicities. But what we share is so much 
deeper than all of those fleeting things. We share experience in the life of Jesus. That's what we share. That's the thing that tethers our hearts together. That's why I can say to you in Christ, who I don't even know well, brother, and you, sister, and I can say, I love you. Well, you barely know me. I know. but We've got all eternity to get to know each other. And what I know is we share the same Lord. What I want to stress is our complete, total dependence on Christ for everything as a church. Completely dependent. Last week we saw how Jesus teaches us to fulfill the Great Commission. Do you remember these verbs? Make disciples, go, teach, baptize. That's that's what we're called to do. But let's not miss this. Apart from the power of the gospel, opening deaf ears, then our teaching and proclaiming of the good news is null and void. And apart from the power of the gospel, opening hearts, planting the seed of faith, and bringing about salvation, unless that happens, there's no baptizing. And without us depending on the Lord to go into this world and to make disciples, if we were never reached with that message, there would be no going. There'd be no news to tell. We need the gospel every step of the way. The moment we try to go and teach and baptize and make disciples in our own strength is the day we fail. That is the day we fail. Because we've stopped relying on the power of the gospel. And we've turned the church into this man-made method, this mediocre, powerless church. Life is too short for me to be a part of that, for you to be a part of that. The mission is too great for that. Christ is too glorious for that. J.C. Ryle wrote a diagnostic um, of a church without the gospel. This is what he writes. Take away the gospel from a church... And that church is not worth preserving. A well without water, a scabbard without a sword, a ship without compass and rudder, a watch without a mainspring, a stuffed carcass without life. All these are useless things, but there is nothing so useless as a church without the gospel. And this is the very question that stares us in the face. Will we remember and stand in the gospel of Christ together as his church? I was talking to a pastor friend a few weeks ago. We live in very different cities, very different contexts. And he asked me how how we had done as a church over all that we've walked through in the last year. And I told him from the beginning, this is the beauty of being a church plant. People ask me, like, are we a healthy church? Well, when I look around, I think, by God's grace, yes. 
Remember, I, de- I describe this as being, you know, we're two and a half years old. And when your two and a half year old is toddling around the house, you don't scold it for not being able to dunk a basketball yet or eating its vegetables. We just are what we are. We're just a little kid in the Lord together. But we very intentionally wanted to plant the Trails Church on the foundation of the gospel. And I said over these last 18 months, that, that conviction has not just been stated, but it's been experienced. We've, we've answered the first of the questions of, uh, is the gospel a strong enough foundation to hold us? It is. It is. It's the only foundation that will hold us. It's the only thing strong enough to tether our hearts together in Christ and on mission. It's brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus is the center of our faith. Jesus is the fabric of our community. Jesus is the message of our mission. And let's commit to never graduate from the gospel. The simple, pure, undiluted, full-throttle gospel of Christ that has turned our lives upside down. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that in your kindness, those of us who are in Christ, that someone shared the good news of Jesus with us, a man, a woman, a child, told us of our condition because of our sin and pointed us to the sufficiency of Jesus as our Savior. I pray that as we mature, as we grow up in the faith, that we would never get over the goodness and grace that was shown to us, that our hearts would still leap and dance and sing until you return or call us home. And I pray for that as as a church, that that be our experience shared together as we follow you, our Savior. It's in Jesus' name we pray.